This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. We are just about to head out on a week-long trip to Michigan. And whenever the dogs see the Sprinter van pull into the driveway, they sort of go through a little dog panic. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it's a very real thing. And, it, you know, even if I go back previous years when we just had Gracie the dog, Gracie would go through great stress seeing us begin to pack things up and move them into the entryway. There's certain triggers for these dogs, and it's very stressful for them. And so both the dogs were sort of barring the doorway uh, last night when they thought we were leaving last night because we were like heading out somewhere, and it was just like too much for them. And Jack, little Jackie, the sort of poodle-like dog is sitting in front of the door. Of course, Harper had dressed him in a little shirt, too, so he had a shirt on, too, which made it extra humorous. Uh, but it's just fascinating to see how dogs react and the behavior of dogs. This message is called Dogged, and there's a big face of a dog <laughs> there, which, if you don't like dogs, I, I think you could still like the message. But it's interesting because when you think about dogs, there are certain qualities that are very endearing, But the word dogged is actually a very, very specific quality, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's supposed to be in our lives as Christians, and yet it doesn't come natively to us. It seems to be something that in a dog is just there, and it's actually one of our favorite qualities that they possess when we relate to a dog, and we're really glad they have it. However, when you sort of think about that and what God would delight to see in us would be a little doggedness. And I have a subtitle, which is Faithful to the End. And it's very uh, special to me, this notion and this thought. And this, this sort of started with, first of all, just the nature of what we are going through in this, in this world right now, which is we pray and then we pray. And then we pray some more, and the world gets worse. So we pray, and we pray, and we pray some more, and the world gets worse. At a certain point, you begin to feel like your prayers are doing nothing, or at least that's what the devil is whispering. And as a result, you can lose your hold, or what we're going to call your doggedness. And you relent to the downward slide, as opposed to standing dogged. Genesis 32, 24, we have a picture of doggedness. It's probably the most famous picture of doggedness in the Bible. In fact, it is so uh, foundational that the name of the people of God is going to be derived out of this exact scene. There is going to be a name that God himself is going to give to the dogged one in this scene, and that is going to be the name of all those that fall into that canopy of salvation moving forward. Those are God's people. And so there's something about this quality that is shown in this that is going to be baked into the very foundation of what God approves. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. That's a very simple way of sharing the story, but that man is God. And Jacob, in this darkest point in his life, is going to 
recognize that he has had the wrong thing in his grip. In fact, his name means heel grabber. So even baked into the name Jacob is this idea of grabbing. And the reason he even got that name is when he was being born, he grabbed the heel of Esau. And he thought the firstborn has what he wants. And so he cons him you know, for the birthright, he cons him for the blessing, and he still is empty. He doesn't have what he's after because he's grabbing the wrong thing, as we oftentimes do. We grab the things of this earth. We grab our own ability, our own resolve, our own determination, thinking that we can muster this life, this blessing, but we can't. And so repentance is letting go of that first thing that we've grabbed, saying, God, I'm using my grip wrong. This grip was designed to grab a hold of one singular thing, and that is you. And so what you're going to see in this story is Jacob wrestling, and even when it appears that God is trying to shrug him off, like, hey, let me go, Jacob grabs and refuses to let go. And the way that the phrase in my life works is until the breaking of day. You hold on, and you keep holding on, and you don't stop holding on until the sun breaks, the morning breaks, until the light beams in, until the answer has come. And so for many of us, we have been caught red-handed letting go. It doesn't mean we didn't start well. We did start well. In fact, some of us had such drive, we knew that God was going to do something. But then somewhere along the journey, we grew tired. We grew weary in well-doing. And we let go. It doesn't mean we let go of God in a general sense or in in a large picture sense, but that one fight in our life, that one soul in our life, that one idea that we knew God had born inside of us and that we were to press forward, somehow we lost it. During COVID, I had a very clear vision, and it grew throughout that time over last fall, and I saw what God had built into this country, and I was wanting to fight to see that which God intended preserved, which is a place that was able to form missionaries to go into the world. And I want to fight for that. Now, it's challenging, and many of us have dealt with this this past year. At what point am I wrong in standing for something that may just be my idea, too? It's like, well, you know, and especially when it comes to America, okay? Because God may want to bring judgment on America. Does America not deserve judgment? Yes, it does. How could we argue that? And yet, a place that was started by the grace of God. It's hard to even argue when you study American history that hasn't been canceled. When you, when you study it, it is stirring and moving, and that's where phrases like God shed his grace on thee come from. It's like, wow, look what God has done, and more missionaries have come forth out of this territory than any place on earth ever. And to see that go down the drain is really hard. It's hard for us to watch. And so I've had to constantly be recalibrating my praying and saying, okay, God, what is your agenda? Well, one thing I do know, whether or not I understand truly what his purpose for this country is, I do know his purpose for the church. And I do know that he desires us to stand upright and not be in the fetal position on the floor hiding in a bomb shelter, that he desires us to walk with a triumphant gate into this world and prove the triumph of God. Because those that believe in God will do exploits. 
I don't picture Jesus hiding in a bomb shelter. I picture Jesus walking straight into the artillery fire, knowing his position, knowing where he comes from, knowing where he's going. And I want to know that. I want us to know that. And I want to continue to pray for revival in the church and not let go just because it seems like it keeps getting worse and worse and worse, no matter how much we pray. Hebrews 3, 6, and then verse 14. Now, in the context, it's talking about the fact that we, the the body of Christ, the believers, are Christ's house. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And then he's going to reference the same statement here. For if we have become partakers of Christ, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So there's a beginning of our confidence, and that's usually where we shine. It's like, I have confidence. However, you're supposed to hold the beginning of your confidence firm, steadfast, all the way to the end. And that's this idea of dogged. Dogs know how to do this. Humans, not so much. Holding on to the banister, not letting go until. So this is a personal story, and some of you have maybe heard me reference it over the years. It's a very critical moment in my life because I grew up in a form of Christianity not altogether different than probably what many of you did, which esteemed the highness of God, esteemed the scriptures, esteemed living a moral life, but didn't actually supply a clear avenue of how that worked. Some of you would know exactly what I mean by that. In other words, it's not that it said, oh yeah, just live in the dirt. Oh yeah, give way to your sin. No, it wasn't that. It was, no, we are called to live higher. Okay, how do we do that? Well, we're not exactly sure, but we do know that we're supposed to. Okay, that leads to all sorts of problems and hazards that many of us have experienced. So here I am, a young Christian, and I, was, I, I meant it. I was the real deal. I mean, God was doing something in me. I mean, real working of grace. I'm a different person. But I had this plague in me where I continued to say, God, I, I'm not going to do that anymore, and then I would, I would do it. Oh boy, it was so frustrating. And I wanted out of what I call the cyclical pattern of defeat, but I had a whole bunch of Christians around me patting me on the shoulder and saying, that's just the way it works, Eric. Okay, so if you're fighting against something that, you know, you just need to accept this, that God loves us even though we're a wreck. Well, I'm not going to argue that. I believe he loves me even when I'm a wreck. However, I also believe that he loves me too much to keep me a wreck, that he desires to change me and sanctify me and empower me to do something with this body that is different than that behavior. So it's like, uh, God, the world or even the church around me is saying, accept this. When I come to your word, I feel like I'm constantly feeling the sponsorship of the Holy Spirit to say, go after something more. But I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know how it worked. So key moment in my life. There is some bait, some temptation, something that is drawing me. And it's down in the, in the bottom level of the house. Don't remember what it was, praise God. Otherwise, I might have to tell you what it was. But it was just something that was uh, looming down there, beckoning me. And it's one of those things that once you get beckoned and you start to move towards it, you notice that you can't stop. And there, there I go. There I go. I'm going again. I'm doing it again. I'm headed out in the middle of the night. I'm headed down 
this stair, but I didn't go down the stairs. I came to the top of the stairs and I grabbed the banister. I said, God, I don't want this. I want something different. I don't know how it works, but I believe you have an answer. So I am not letting go of this banister until I get it. That's my banister story. And I, I don't know how long I was there, but it was about an hour. Just holding to this banister saying, God, I know you have something to solve whatever this is. I know you don't want me down there. I don't even want to be down there. So if there's something in heaven that solves this dilemma, I need it. And I went to bed that night without going down those stairs. And it was the first time in my life I actually saw the intervention of God. I didn't know to call it grace at the time, but that's what it was. It was God's grace at work, and yet I had to sort of learn how to coordinate this and understand this. And that's, that's part of what the lack of discipleship in the church has brought us to is a whole bunch of that in our lives. But many of us haven't come to the point of the end of ourselves, we're so sick and tired of this that we're willing to grab the man and say, I will not let you go until I get what only you have. One of uh, my favorite stories that had a big impact on me was the doggedness of Mrs. Taylor. Uh, that's Hudson Taylor's mom. I don't remember her name, so she's known as Mrs. Taylor in this. But Hudson Taylor was, and I don't know how old he was at the time. Some of you may remember. I haven't read the story in a long time. But I'm going to say 15 to 18, somewhere in that range. He's older teens. And he was, he was not the Hudson Taylor we know and love. He was not healthy in his soul. And he very clearly did not believe in Jesus, even though he came from very good stock. And his mom was a praying mom. His mom loved Jesus. I'm guessing his dad loved Jesus too. I don't remember all the, the storyline in it. And yet his mom, one day when she was away, she was at some kind of getaway with some other women, she just decided it's, it's time. She's going to get down on her knees and she is not going to rise from her knees until she has the assurance from God that Hudson Taylor's soul is secure, that he has given himself to Jesus. That is a risky thing to do. I'm not exactly sure how you feel about that, but I'm uncomfortable with it because she could be down there for years. <laughs> and so she gets down on her knees and just wrestles. God, I will not get up until I know. Meanwhile, Hudson Taylor is like at home alone, bored, comes to the library, grabs a book off the shelf and begins to read it, is so stirred, discovers Christ, sees him clearly in the midst of all this, and yields his life to Christ, and the mom, all these miles away, gets an assurance from God, it's done. She comes back home. Hudson Taylor is so changed, so moved, so blown away that he has been rebellious. What has he done? And he, now he sees Jesus so excited to tell his mom. He sees his mom coming, opens the door, big smile on his face. And before he could say anything, his mom was able to say, I know. I mean, that, that's extraordinary. What is that? I want a little piece of that. Dogged. It's a fun word. I don't know if you guys like words like I do, but uh, dogged is one of those fun words. Persistent in effort, stubbornly tenacious. That's what dogged means. Now, some of you feel like I'm offending your dog uh, by, by saying this, that this is a dog quality. Well, the way a dog wields it is actually usually very endearing. A dog can wield this, I'm sure, in a negative way, but there's a way that a dog uniquely wields 
their persistence and their stubbornness that is rather remarkable because they're going to actually do things to defend the ones or to stand for the ones or to keep expressing love to the ones that they care about. And it's, a, it's an amazing quality. And boy, if we could get this into our souls, it would be uh, quite special. So there's a, a statement. We've used it here at Ellerslie multiple times. And it's actually rather convicting. So we, you, know, you, you don't want to mention it all the time because it, it, quest, it brings up this very question of doggedness. Because every single one of us, and I'm chief on the list, of having things that I've set out to pray for and I'm willing to pray for years and then you could talk to me a year later and it's like, whatever happened to that, Eric? I'm like, that's a really good question. What did happen to that? I don't, I don't, I don't even remember. Somehow I just lost it along the way. That prayer I was praying every single day and then some, you know, you go on a trip or something happens. I don't, I don't know what it is. You always, you look back and you're like, how did I drop that? And yet I did. And so praying until you pray is a little different than that, but it's the type of thing that just stirs that. And this is something that A.W. Tozier wrote, but it's sort of similar to what Mrs. Taylor did, not rising until. So it's this idea. You go into a prayer time, and you don't end the prayer time until you have actually really prayed. You guys know the difference between sort of praying, having a little introductory prayer, and then really praying? Yeah... That's why it's dangerous to bring this up, because we do know that, and when we have ever really prayed, we know the difference. It's distinct. So A.W. Tozier says it this way, Dr. Moody Stewart, a great praying man of a past generation, once drew up a set of rules to guide him in his prayers. Among these rules is this one, pray till you pray. The difference between praying till you quit and praying till you pray is illustrated by the American evangelist John Wesley Lee. He often likened a season of prayer to a church service and insisted that many of us close the meeting before the service is over. He confessed that once he arose too soon from a prayer session and started down the street to take care of some pressing business, he had only gone a short distance when an inner voice reproached him. Son, the voice seemed to say, did you not pronounce the benediction before the meeting was ended? He understood and at once hurried back to the place of prayer where he tarried until the burden lifted and the blessing came down. The habit of breaking off our prayers before we have truly prayed is as common as it is unfortunate. Often the last 10 minutes may mean more to us than the first half hour because we must spend a long time getting into the proper mood to pray effectively. We may need to struggle with our thoughts to draw them in from where they have been scattered through the multitude of distractions that result from the task of living in a disordered world. Some Christians smile at the thought of praying through but something of the same idea is found in the writings of practically every great praying saint from Daniel to the present day. We cannot afford to stop praying till we have actually prayed. Praying through. So one of the things that Tozier brings up in that is this phrase, praying through, which technically I had never heard about until, oh, what was that, about 12 years ago. And I remember there was something that God was doing in our soul, and we had a small band around us. This is in the developments of even Ellerslie. And we had multiple nights where we would stay up all night and pray. And it was something God was doing. The book Wrestling Prayer is going to come out of this season as well. 
And it was a very, very powerful, pithy season where I had been spending every message I would give, this is going to sound extreme at first, but it's, it's not an exaggeration. Every message I would give would take about two weeks to prepare. So I would give a message every two weeks. I know that sounds strange, but, and the messages on average, I think it was around 85 hours of preparation. So I was in a season of incredible study, like just saturating the word of God and, and pulling these things together, which is going to become the foundation of Ellerslie's curriculum. And after that, I felt like God was saying, can you take that same time and begin to give it in prayer? Which then made me feel like, well, how am I going to do my study if I'm doing that? And a lot of us feel like, well, I have to have this much study, and otherwise, you know, how could I be a Christian leader? And, but praying, how many, how many of us ever think I should have this much praying and to be a Christian leader? I mean, truly to lead the church of Jesus Christ, your prayer life is probably preeminent out of all things, and yet it is the hardest one to justify. Because I could have a great prayer session and then stand up here and have nothing to speak. And of course, you could evaluate it all on what I have to speak instead of how much time I've been praying. When in actuality, those of us that know how the kingdom of heaven works, it's the prayer time that makes the message even work in the first place. But the term praying through, not relenting until, I begin to exercise whatever this is, and it's somewhat of a scary thought, and that is that you pray, and 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 you pray, pray until what you're praying for is answered. Now, that comes in different ways. There's, some Christians would say there's a burden, and it's a prayer burden, okay? They, we have all sorts of phrase, phrase, phraseology for what we have going on inside of us as Christians, and some of it can be misleading, some of it's accurate, right? But it's like a burden, and you pray until that burden is lifted. That doesn't mean that the answer is fully realized in the natural realm. Remember Elijah? He is going to pray on Mount Carmel, and then he's going to check. There's no rain, so he's going to pray. He's going to check. There's no rain. Then he's going to pray. He's going to check. There's no rain. Seven times. And the seventh time, he's going to send his servant to go check to see if the rain is coming. And he's going to see a cloud the size of a man's fist in the sky. And he's going to say, okay, it's done. See, he's prayed through. You're like, well, there's no rain. Yeah, but there's a cloud the size of a man's fist. The rain's coming. And for those of us that have been in this territory, we understand that. There is a point where there's suddenly, you've busted through. You know that you have done and accomplished in prayer what is needed. Now you move to the next thing. And this idea of praying through is a little intimidating, I have to admit, because you don't know how long it's going to take to pray through. And we sort of want to have it mapped out, like, okay, God, well, you need 15 minutes of prayer, and then? Is that what we're looking for? And he doesn't answer that. We're like, so, so how much are you thinking? You see, how long is the neighbor supposed to knock? How long is the widow supposed to irritate the judge? You see, these are the illustrations that Jesus himself gives in regards to prayer. That you pray, and you pray, and you pray until the door opens. You pray, and you pray, and you pray until the judge relents. Well, that, first of all, it sounds rude. And second of all, it doesn't have a timetable for it, which is hard for us. One of the blessings of being a dog is I don't know that they have the same sense of time and calendar and that this is inappropriately long. In other words, they don't have that. We have that, and it makes it hard for us. Luke 18, 1, men, men ought always to pray and not to faint or not to lose heart. There is this idea that you press in prayer 
And you're supposed to always be pressing that prayer and not to lose heart in it. This is doggedness right here. And then we have 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Now, there's two ways you can look at this, okay? And I know this is one of those odd scriptures. First of all, it falls between two that are, I could say, equally odd, but at least they make more sense to the human mind. Like rejoice always is right before this. And then give thanks in all things is after this. But in the middle of it is pray without ceasing. Does that mean I never stop praying? Which you could say, yes, technically that's what it means. But you could also say, when you have a burden, when you have your hand on that rope and it, is, it has a grappling hook hold on the promises of God in heaven, you don't stop pulling on it. And so as a result, you maintain a position of pull and not release. Okay, and there's two different ways you can live in your soul. And we know when we're living as we ought. Because when I bring certain things up, you're like, I let go of the wrong. You see, you can hold on to something, even though you might not be yanking with all your might every moment, you still have your hands on the rope. And you are ready to pull again at every juncture, every day. And so... It's, it's a hard one to sometimes know practically how to exercise in our life to pray without ceasing because like when I'm, does that mean everywhere I go, I'm always praying? Yeah. You know, some people have said practicing the presence of God where you are always aware of your God, always available to him, always in connection with him. Okay. And then when you tie it in with this message, it's always holding on, doggedly not letting go until you get the breakthrough. And then what do you do? You grab onto something else and hold on until you get the breakthrough. This is just the behavior of the Christian. So I know this is called dogged. It's not called anted, uh, but we're going to consider the ant, okay? It, isn't it funny that, uh, you know, we don't have necessarily a, uh, an adjective to describe the ant the same way, like antish, uh, his antish behaviors. But an ant is a pretty impressive character, but I think all of us are happy to have dogged be the one we go with, okay? It's just a little more pleasant than a bunch of ants crawling all over you. I, I don't like that. But ants are a pretty extraordinary character, uh, a little creature, and I've shared this before uh, in, in the past, and it's just a great story. It's, it's from a, 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 the, the tales of a, a famous military leader and tactician back in the fourth, uh, fourth, 14th century named Tamerlane. Here's how it goes. I once was forced to take shelter from my enemies in a ruined building where I sat alone many hours. Desiring to divert my mind from my hopeless condition, I fixed my eyes on an ant that was carrying a grain of corn larger than itself up a high wall. I numbered the efforts it made to accomplish this object. The grain fell 69 times to the ground, but the insect persevered, and the 70th time it reached the top. This sight gave me courage at the moment, and I never forgot the lesson. So I know it's strange to call an ant's behavior dogged, but that's what it is. That's doggedness right there. And it deeply stirs me because when you are carrying this grain of corn and you're carrying it up a high wall and then the grain of corn falls, what do you need to do if you're the ant? You need to go all the way back down the wall, all the way across the dirt floor to grab that grain of corn, which probably even bounced further away. And this is the way we feel as Christians right now in this generation, don't we? We're praying, and doesn't it feel like the grain of corn keeps bouncing further away than what we have envisioned to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? 
the grain of corn is like, do, 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 and it bounces further away. It's like, excuse me, go get it. Pick it up, church. Don't relent. But God, we've done this 69 times. I would be very impressed if the church had done it 69 times. I think we're more like, I've done this, okay, three times. In other words, we feel like we have exhausted ourselves in standing for the truth. But this quality of the church, this quality of the Holy Spirit, who is unrelenting in his pursuit of you, is what he wants to build within us, that unrelenting pursuit of God's glory in this earth. To not relent, to not give up, but to remain dogged and fixed. The 70th attempt, the hardest of them all. You ever notice that right when you're at that cusp, you've never felt so exhausted and tired. I know. I've been there so many times where right at that cusp, right at that breakthrough, you just feel like throwing down your sword and giving up. The devil must sense breakthrough. Have you ever noticed that? There must be like some kind of fragrance that gives off when God is about to do something great because how does the devil know to attack at that exact point, to weigh us down with doubts and, and uh, despair? At that exact point, how does he know it? Are we giving off something? Is the Holy Spirit, like when he moves in, he's like, okay, we're gonna get this together and then God's like, huh? Or I'm sorry, the devil's like, huh? I see him, I know something's up. I don't know exactly how all that works, but I do know that the devil's timing is quite extraordinary. The 70th attempt. Luke 18, one, men ought always to pray and not to, and I put in, you know, this is an adapted version of the scripture. Men ought always to pray and not to set down the grain of corn. We have been given an assignment. God's handed us a grain of corn. He says, could you carry this up the wall? You just, just sort of set it up in the, at the top of the wall. Oh, sure, sure, God. And we run out there and we carry up our corn right before we get to the top. Something knocks that corn all the way down. We're like, God, I tried. And God's like, uh, men ought always to pray and not set down the grain of corn. So go get the grain of corn again. But God, I carried it all the way up and it fell. Yeah? But the job is to get it up to the top of the wall. You see, it takes something deeper that we don't as humans have. It's a well that most of us have never drawn from, and that is the Holy Spirit's resolve. What we're looking in is our own pocket saying, but God, I don't have the persistence. I don't have the desire. I don't have the drive. And God stops us, puts his finger over our, 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 our lips and says, shh, I do. So if you would dig down into my well, put your bucket into my well, you will find the grr to keep going. Well, God, how many times do I need to do this? I mean, I've done it 69 times, as many as it takes. We do this until we get it up to the top. So some of you are like, you know, when you get to the 70th time, it's like, well, God, uh, Eric Ludy gave a message, talked about 70 times that the ant went up. I mean, this is, uh, I've already done it 70. Well, then you do it 70 times 70, if necessary, which you could just hear Jesus saying that, wouldn't he? Or maybe he'd say it this way, 70 times 700, right? Just to make the point, because we, he knows that we're mathematical and we're counting everything. Galatians 6, 9, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if, and it, it typically is going to say if we do not faint, but I'm going to stick in something else here, and that is if we do not stop carrying the corn up the high wall. You see, we will reap in due season if we continue to persevere. 
if we remain dogged in our position. 2 Thessalonians 3.13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, this is an adapted scripture here. It's pretty obvious. Do not give up. So, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good, or do not give up even though you've done it 69 times only to see that heavy grain of corn fall to the ground. Even if all you're praying over this last year seems to have created <laughs> greater havoc for the church. The church looks weaker now than it did back in March of 2020, which it looked pretty weak back then. We have more problems in our culture, and we've been praying for our culture to be revived. Remember all our prayers for government leaders? And it sure does seem like our government leaders are like uh, Teflon to our praying. I don't see much change going on. God, the grain of corn's like further away. Church, go down, pick up that grain of corn, and let's carry it up to the top of the wall. consider the dog. All right, now, I am a dog guy. I really like dogs. I didn't actually want to have a dog, okay, because dogs have smells, and they have fur that gets everywhere, and they're problematic when you need to leave town. You know, things like that, and Eric's very, you know, very organized and very disciplined, and dogs sort of get in the way, so you have a dog. I come over and visit your dog. I love dogs, okay, but I also have kids, and kids really like dogs, too. So uh, we're on our third dog now, uh, and I do love them. I really do. In fact, when, when Gracie was parting ways with us, it was a very, very touching moment. And I remember I came along with the girls, uh, and it was actually Leslie, Harper, and Avi, and we were going to say goodbye to Gracie. She was at the, uh, the vet hospital, and that you couldn't go into the vet hospital because of COVID because you don't want to transfer COVID to the vet, or to the dog, uh, to the dogs. And so they had to bring out Gracie in a, in a box. And so before Gracie came out, I was standing there with uh, the girls, and I realized that my role was to be the strong one. And, you know, and I'm thinking the whole time, okay, because as a guy, I don't know if I'm the only one that's done this, it's a dog. It's a dog. It's a dog. It's a dog. And then the next thing you know, I'm trying to give my speech. <laughs> I still remember where I was standing. I, I'm trying to give my speech. You know, it would be like, you know, we just want to thank God for the special times we've had with Gracie. You know, instead of just being upset about the fact that we're losing, let's, let's remember what, you know, the time we did have, one of those types of speeches. Great speech. I had it in my head. And I start talking about Gracie, and I start blubbering and crying. And of course, I wasn't helping anyone in that situation. <laughs> And the preciousness of a dog is hard to describe. It's because the way they behave towards us is so beautiful, innocent, and right. And what it shows us is something that I would say is what God desires out of us as his faithful ones. And so there is something woven into it. You know, when, when someone asks the great theological question of if dogs are going to be in heaven, especially our dog, it's like, well... All the other dogs may not be, but our dogs will be in heaven. Have you ever had that discussion? It's like, I'm sure God is going to put them there. But there is something precious. God knows it. He created this, this realm of animals, and he uses them to teach us and to train us. So let's consider the dog. Whoa, what was that? Okay, Bobby the Sky Terrier. So uh, Bobby the Sky Terrier, uh, typically known as Gray Friars Bobby, which some of you have heard of before, back in 1872... Uh, let me read you the story of Bobby. 
Bobby was a Sky Terrier that belonged to a Scottish night watchman named John Gray. After John Gray died, Bobby spent the rest of his life, 14 years, protecting John's grave in the Greyfriars Cemetery. And so even though we don't have a picture of that, they've made tons of movies about it. So I do have uh, this, and that is about as precious as they get, a little uh, Sky Terrier guarding, uh, that is John Gray's grave. And there's something about that that moves us. And I, 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 tr- I struggle to put my finger on what it is, but it is the doggedness of this dog. The dog won't leave. In fact, you try and mess with this grave and you're running into the Bobby the Sky Terrier. And he's going to take a bite out of you because this is precious territory for him. This is where his master lay. And there's something about that. And so a lot of people have conjectured, it's like, why, do, why does a dog do this? Well, this is the last place that their master was. So if their master is going to come back, which they fully expect, he'll be right here. And so it's this interesting psychological tension that we face because it's, it moves us when we see it. The loyalty and the dedication and the expectancy of the master to return is very intriguing to our soul. And so what we see in this is something of doggedness. When we say the word dogged, this is actually what it is. 14 years at that grave. And he doesn't count how many times, you know, how many days, how many weeks, how many months. That's the precious thing about being a dog is you don't have to chalk things up on the wall and say, I've been here for 14 years and he never came. Instead, it's like he knows the scent and he knows it was last year. And so this is where he's going to wait. And in a strange sense as the church, Jesus is going to go up into the heavens and the last scent is going to be there on the Mount of Olives. And in a strange sense, in our soul, we await, even though we not, might not be present on the Mount of Olives, we wait with dogged anticipation for our Christ to return. And people could say, he's not coming back. But like Bobby the Sky Terrier, we hold our ground. Hachiko the Akita in 1935. This is a precious story too. Hachiko was an Akita dog that belonged to a Japanese professor named Ueno. Ueno and Hachiko did the same thing every day. They would walk to the train station in the morning. Ueno would jump aboard the train and head to work, and Hachiko would return home. Then Hachiko would come to the train station just prior to Ueno's arrival and be waiting to greet Ueno when he stepped off the train. One day, Ueno suddenly collapsed and died while teaching at the university and never came back home. Every day for nine years until his death, Hachiko would come to the train station in the evening and wait for Ueno to exit the train. There's an actual picture of Hachiko. And, and that's, that's remarkable. Every day for nine years, dogged. He knows this is where his master is going to be. And even though he doesn't know why his master hasn't come back, he knows this is where his master comes. He knows his master's coming, so he's going to come and wait at that train station every day. Capitan, 2016. Capitan was a German shepherd dog that belonged to an Argentinian man named Miguel Guzman. Guzman died in 2006 and was buried by his family. Guzman's family noted that his dog, Capitan, disappeared at this time. No one knew where he went. Capitan was seen sniffing around a cemetery a few days later. It just happened to be the same cemetery where Guzman was buried. Capitan eventually found Guzman's grave, and he stayed by Guzman's grave for the final 10 years of his life, refusing to leave. Every evening at exactly 6 p.m., Capitan would lie down on Guzman's grave and go to sleep. 
All right, now, if we could bottle up what it is about these stories that stirs us, it's like, why? Come on. It's just a dog. And yet there's something about the fidelity, the loyalty, the love that moves us. It's like, that's good. All right, hey, guys, can we bottle that and get it inside of us? That's good. So here's Capitan. Isn't that precious? Hawkeye in the year 2011. Navy SEAL John Tumelson died in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan in 2011. At John's memorial service in front of 1,500 people, Hawkeye, John's beloved Labrador, walked to the front and laid down at the foot of the casket and stayed there the entire service. So here was John and Hawkeye, and you can see that picture above the casket. And Hawkeye wasn't invited up, he just came up, and he laid down at the at that casket, the whole memorial service. I don't know how to pronounce this, uh, but it's Brazilian. It means lion. Leo, in 2011. Leo was a golden retriever dog that belonged to Brazilian Cristina Marie Cesario Santana. Santana was caught in a terrible mudslide in 2011. Leo refused to leave Santana's gravesite. Number 305. Isn't that precious? So there's something about dogs, and it's been, you know, you search this, and I came up with stories. It's like, wow, this is actually a, to say it's common, common, I'm sure that a lot of people will intervene and refuse to allow the dog to stay, right? But it is intriguing to our soul to see how a dog behaves when he is given the room to do it. Like, no one stopped Tachiko from coming. No one stopped uh, Bobby from staying at Gray Friars. I mean, they could have put him down. I mean, put him out of his misery. Instead, when you allow a dog to behave as a dog behaves, it's quite something. It's like they're attuned to their master, and they're attuned for the longevity, the long haul, to persevere and persist until the master returns. And ironically, this is the picture that is given of the bridegroom who is going to come, and he's desirous to see his attendants waiting that they would be ready for when he returns. And how can you be ready for when he returns if you're not where he's going to come? And so as a result, there's something profound in the picture. This is a video, it's about a minute and 16 seconds, and it just sort of shows it, it's, it's pretty precious. Uh-oh, we don't have uh, audio on this. Is there any way to get audio, bud? Okay. Oh, there we go. Good girl. Come on. Good girl. Let's go. Come on. Come on, Dite. Come on, Dite. Dite, come. Come on. Come on, Dite. Come on. Come on, Dite. Dite, come on. Dite, you have to leave the cemetery. Come on. Dite, come on, honey. Oh, my God. Oh my God. Detail. Oh, it's making me cry. Detail. Come on, Detail. 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 Dogged. Persistent in effort, stubbornly tenacious. 
There is so much in this world that wants you to give up, to let go, to come home. Even well-meaning people, this is like, from what I understand from this story, which I don't know much, it's like his detail wasn't, this was, he wasn't their dog. He was this young girl's dog who just got buried. And this is either her parents or this is uh, her aunt and uncle. I don't remember which one it was. But it's people that love detail. And it's not that they don't love the girl that died. They just realize that you have to move on. You can't just stay in this condition of waiting. Come on, you need to wake up and you know, encounter reality. Move on. You know what? When we come to our master who has departed and who has promised to return again, we know his scent and we refuse to leave that cross, that empty tomb. We know where our life is. And so even though even the council around us would say, come on, you can let that go. You can move on. Stop holding on. There are certain things in our life that we must hold on. Because I would agree there is some wisdom to moving on in certain situations. However, there's one, and that is the work of our Christ, our master, where we are to be dogged in our faith. The reasons to stop waiting, there's a lot of them. When God appears silent, remember the Syrophoenician woman begging Jesus to hear her plea, and Jesus ignores her. He appears silent. Well, for most of us, that's enough to get us to stop. How about when God appears to have forgotten? Remember the Lazarus test? See, each of these are tests for our soul. Do you believe that God alone has the answer? Who in here is going to remain dogged in their faith? The Syrophoenician woman is dogged, and she refuses to stop. She knows that only Jesus can heal, and as a result, Jesus does heal her child. Lazarus, Jesus is going to give a promise that this sickness will not end in death, but then he leaves town. And it sure does appear that he forgot because Lazarus doesn't just die but gets wrapped in grave claws, thrown into a tomb, and a big stone is thrown in front, and it four days passes. I mean, if there was ever an argument that God forgot about one of his promises, that would be a pretty good one. But on the fourth day, Jesus returns. He says, roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. You see, who's going to, is God going to find us doggedly waiting for his return? God, I, know, I knew you were going to come. I knew that you were going to come. How about when the powers of the natural realm seem too powerful? We could call this the walking on water test. When Peter gets out of the boat and is genuinely starting with faith, but then the winds and the waves start beating and he turns his gaze from Christ to the powers of the natural realm. It's just too much. And if you were to look at our country, our governmental system right now, I can only imagine if you were in China <laughs> and how much more so you would feel it. It's like there's no hope here. It's only going to get darker. Well, that's what it looked like in World War II when Hitler was ruling over all of Europe. It's only going to get worse is how everyone would probably say it. And yet, our God is greater than all of these factors. And are we still holding on in faith that our God is able and that Haman hangs on his own gallows? How about this one? When God seems to have failed, the cross test. Imagine believing in Jesus as your Messiah and not really understanding his commission and his purpose. You thought he was going to destroy the Romans and now he's hanging naked on a tree and he breathes his last. Doesn't it look like our God has failed? He hasn't failed. This is where your doggedness comes in. 
See, a dog seems to instinctively know to stand in that situation and to not leave. We, on the other hand, have a propensity to give up. Dokimion. It means the process of proving sterling coins and demonstrating them to be genuine without alloy. This is what God promises that he is going to do to our faith. He says that you have a good start, but I need to test that faith. I just need to make sure that it's the real deal. And so as a result, there will be a challenge. James 1.3, knowing this, the trying of your faith works patience. 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. So this is doggedness right here in scripture. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. I believe that Jesus is in control. You still believe that, Eric? You still believe that he's in control? I still believe that Jesus is in control. You know what, Eric? Christianity is passe. It's, you know, it's just sort of the religion of the old people. It's not something that any smart, intelligent human today that knows the science, that knows the facts, that knows the philosophies of our day is going to possibly buy into. Come on, Eric, acknowledge that. I believe that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one way unto the Father, and that is through him. I'm a believer, and I'm not backing down. Doggedness. See, there's doggedness for the global situation around us, but there's also a doggedness that's needed in the private chamber of our soul in regards to the things that God has entrusted us. It's like here. Eric, I want to entrust you with a grain of corn, a personalized grain of corn, and I'm, I'm calling your life to carry that up this high wall. So we all are entrusted with a grain of corn as a church to carry up the high wall, the glory of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come, to actually beckon his return, to reach the lost, to go into all the world and reach those that don't know him. That's like our corporate grain of corn, but each of us is entrusted with an individual grain as well. And I don't want us to set that down. I want us to freshly rally our souls to grab it and lift it up today. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Let us hold fast our grain of corn without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Hebrews 10, 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. It's sort of like if Dite leaves that, uh, that burial site, you know, it's just not as good of a video. <laughs> it's the same with us, that there's a purpose, that there's something very precious when the heavenly realms look down and they see a little Dite, a little Capitan, a little Bobby that is standing his ground or her ground spiritually for Jesus Christ. It's precious. Yeah, I- of course, I, I've never watched a movie in heaven, and I don't know exactly how all that works. But I can only hazard a guess that what we see in these little symbols of dogs, that God delights in us with a similar passion, that he has a warmth towards us that moves him, that the angels are moved when they see 
that same resolution, that same persistence, that same doggedness stirring within us. Come on, Dite. Come on. Come on. Leave it. Leave it behind. Leave it behind. I can't. I cannot leave this. I know where God has planted me. I must stand here. Well, you, there's the elements out here. You can't stay overnight here. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. I can't leave. Whatever happens, happens. But I can't leave. Whatever that is, it's attractive in heaven. Dying in the faith all the way to the end. What I've oftentimes said is the greatest version of faith isn't necessarily the one that always sees everything come to this earth. Because there's been some great men and women of faith that are not going to live in the day when Jesus returns. But those that are willing to actually expend their life believing the whole way and even under their very dying breath still holding on. And that's what I love about these dogs. It's like pretty extraordinary. They died like a Chico died on his way to the train station. Most of the dogs died actually at the gravesite. They just refused to leave. It's like, okay, that's what I want in my soul. I want to die in the faith. I don't want to doubt and then you know, leave and go to the nursing home right before uh, Jesus is going to come and do his thing. I want to die in the faith. I want to stand my ground doggedly to the end. Hebrews 3, 6, through 4, 6 and then verse 14. This is, was repeated in the very beginning of the uh, uh, message. We are Christ's house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Oops, you guys aren't supposed to see that. Oh, there's no finishing uh, slide yet. So uh, Hudson, you put that in and I'll pray. <laughs> Father, there is a quality that we feel shortchanged on because we've been digging in our own pockets to find it. But it is a resolution, it is a persistence, it is a doggedness that comes from heaven. And so, Lord Jesus, we want to reach down into what you have supplied for us. And we ask for more of this. We ask for a greater resolution, a greater drive, a greater growl than we have currently. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just freshly touch those areas of our life, those grains of corn that we have set down, those sacred places in our life that we have departed from instead of remained loyal and faithful to. Lord, I just pray that you would train us in and through this, that this mental picture would would come emblazoned upon our souls and that we would grasp it, we would see it, and we would respond to it. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.